loving one another, serving one another, helping one another. All the one another's happen, but the danger is with us as evangelicals is we're so focused on doing our own thing, building our own little silos of entrepreneurship. Now, entrepreneurship is good, but the danger of that is we don't work together. Welcome to this week's edition of First Person. I'm Wayne Shepherd, and today you'll meet Greg Pritchard of the European Leadership Forum. I'll introduce you to today's guest more fully in a few moments, but I'm very glad you've joined us this week. You'll find more information about First Person and a complete archive of past interviews online at firstpersoninterview.com. There's also a schedule of what's ahead in the weeks to come. Again, firstpersoninterview.com. Also, to interact with us, please use our Facebook page, facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Greg Pritchard is the president of Communication Institute and is the director of the European Leadership Forum, an organization that serves as a bridge between local leaders' needs and God's global resources. The European Leadership Forum will be coming up in a couple of weeks in Poland, so I wanted you to meet Greg today. He came to the studio a few weeks ago and started telling me his own story. I grew up in a church that really didn't believe the gospel, really didn't believe the Bible. Uh, we were a church-going family, but it was, uh, it was actually a Methodist church we went to. We went every week. Um, but I didn't see much reality in the people that were there. Um, I, I remember telling a friend of mine when I was in high school that anybody who said they knew the name of God was a fool. <laughs> Because uh, you know, no one could know who God was, if there was a God. And, and I came to know that that was the term that would be known as an agnostic, someone who didn't believe you could know anything. But around um, the next year after I said that, um, I was exposed uh, to people who actually were Christians and, and were living differently. All of a sudden, a message has credibility uh, when it comes from a reality like that. And how and, old are you at this time? Uh, I think I was about 16. Okay, you know, pretty young. Pretty young still. Yeah. Um, in that time, I still had a lot of questions. I mean, uh, I heard the gospel for the first time because I, the gospel really had never been clearly articulated from the scriptures. And then I had a lot of questions. I mean, you know, why this? Why did he come to die? You know, what evidence do you have that Jesus really was who he says he was? You know, isn't the Bible full of errors? You know, I mean, all the, the basic things that people ask when they're— wrestling with the gospel for the first time. Mm -hmm. As people were able to answer those questions, all of a sudden I began to say, this could really be true. And both their lives uh, were an evidence of that as well as the coherent, comprehensive truth of what they were explaining in relationship. And it was powerful. So does it, th did this characterize your teenage years then, asking these questions and getting these answers? Well, that's a long story, but uh, it, it was uh, an initial commitment after this uh, relatively you know, uh, intensive process. Uh, I did come to an initial point of faith, but I, I wasn't discipled. I, I really wasn't helped to how to grow. And so I, I, I didn't really know much. And so I, I began to try to learn a little bit and grow but the first couple of years of my – after I made a step in faith, I, I, I didn't have anyone there to disciple me, anyone to really help me understand and grow. I even remember when I was in uh, high school, I was a captain of a football team in high school. And so I, I remember bringing together a group of guys and saying, okay, I, I think we're supposed to study this the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> so I would make them come to this, to this morning breakfast once a week. And, and now what do I do? <laughs> you know, well, and I, I brought a guy in that was supposedly going to help us study the Bible. And, uh, but he never opened the Bible. And so, I mean, I literally never knew or grew much. And so I actually came out of high school with a new set of questions. Is this really true or not? 
So actually, it was kind of my doubting Thomas time. For, and I didn't go right to, off to university. I both worked at a camp in the summer, and then I, and I hitchhiked a bit around the country. And, and I, I, this was the time where I really kind of took on this question, is it really, really true? And so I went even more in-depth with that issue. I read a lot of guys like C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer. Yeah. And a guy named I think Al- I know how old you are. And I, a lot of that was going on about that <laughs> yeah, time, it was. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah it was. And, and it was... For me, it was very, you know, very powerful because I, I, I became convinced it really is true. I, I need to really walk with the Lord and find people that can walk with me. And uh, so that was the point where I really began to grow. Because then I, when, I, when I left that, I went off to university and I pretty much was going to, on fire for the Lord. I really was on fire for the Lord and I began to grow and see people come to faith and, and uh, get really rooted in the Word. And, and I began to, you know, as an ignorant young Christian, begin to try to lead other people. In those days, could you have seen yourself and what you do now in terms of the, the global outreach and the vision you have now? I mean, was that all a part of it then? or No, no, it wasn't. Uh, you know, but a few years uh, you know, into my university, uh, I had an older friend tell me, you know, you really need to go overseas. And you need to have an experience of, of with the gospel of, of really getting a bigger picture, becoming a world Christian. Nothing replaces that, does yeah, it? Yeah, it really changes your world when you mm-hmm. begin to get a bigger picture. And so I, I actually joined a group called Operation Mobilization yeah. in a, for a short-term mission, uh, you know, in the middle of my college years. And uh, and they had a shortage of, of leaders. <laughs> so they asked me to lead a, a church planning team for a summer in uh, in Ireland. And they'd never done that before. They never had brought teams to Ireland before. So I had, you know, about 20 people from, you know, 15 countries that I led for two months to help do the groundwork for a church planting in Ireland. <laughs> and it was just like a mind-blowing. So that was really powerful in helping me to see that the Lord could use me overseas and that I, I got a, a passion for overseas. I mean, I really prayed. said, Lord, if you want me to go, show me where you want me to go. But I, I, he didn't for a long time. I didn't know where I was supposed to go. But So it did happen during college that I got a heart for overseas, but it wasn't mm-hmm. initially in the first couple of years. It was a, toward the end of my college. Did you think you were headed to traditional missions? Was that a part of the possibility at that time? You know, it, it's interesting. I I, um, I remember going and, and talking to a, a godly man who, you know, who was— uh, who'd been in missions for 30 years, and this was right after my college years. I really still felt this this burden for overseas. And he said to me, he said, Greg, you know, there, there is a need overseas, but the big thing, you need to find out what God's called you to do and your gifts and develop those. And as you develop those and get the training you need, then you'll have something to offer when you go overseas. And that was very profound. I found that the, the idea of just going overseas doesn't make it spiritual. It's you have to have something, what are you going to give? What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And so... I felt like this very clear calling that I needed to actually be more active in, in doing things. And then, secondly, to receive the training and then praying that the Lord would open up a door for, you know. But it, but it wasn't, it didn't feel like I had clarity on what that meant. Mm-hmm. It was, the Lord really had to lead me. What were some of the other experiences? I want to get, uh, and we will talk about uh, your life today. You're you're pretty much a, a strategist for uh, taking the gospel around the world today and helping others do the same. But what were some of the other experiences that led up to what you do now? I'd say one thing was um, the experience of just saying the Lord at a second university. My, the school I went to was Indiana University. At the time, it was the leading uh you know, party school in the in the country. <laughs> it was known for a lot of schools of leading academics. It was had a leading yeah, party, right. and uh, I I really 
you know, it was sold out. And uh, I saw God move in a really powerful way. I mean, I saw since a mini revival happened, I felt God, you know, this is going to sound crazy to a lot of people, but I felt God call me to join a fraternity house as a mission field. Yes, I, mean, right. I mean, I, li- I very clearly had no interest in fraternity houses or fraternity house system. So how'd that work out for you? Well, the Lord used it. And uh, we had... Um, we had we had probably one point forty guys in Bible studies. We saw dozens of people come to the Lord. We saw so many people come to the Lord. We sent out frat missionaries throughout the <laughs> campus, and we saw a little mini revival happen. I I've mean, never heard of such a thing. Yeah, it was God, God really worked? I mean, there's people who were the biggest druggies and parties in the house that came to faith and eventually joined. You know, we're on uh, in full time ministry. Some of them, some of them are pastors today that from that fraternity house, and and it was just an incredible picture of God. You know, using you when you don't know much and you don't have much to offer, but you say, Lord, I love you. I remember one fraternity brother walking up to me one time and say, what is it about you? What what makes you tick? And I said, uh, God and a little bit of love. <laughs> it was the start of a good conversation. Yeah. And so that was one big influence. Another one was as I began to grow, I was constantly exposed to non-Christians. And I love that because, you know, I loved wrestling with their questions because I had lots of questions as a non-Christian. I had questions even as a Christian, honest questions uh, deserving honest answers. And so as I continue to wrestle with the truthfulness of the gospel and how to explain that to people, um, that process of learning growing, I, I became more and more exposed to the work of Francis Schaeffer and Labrie. And that became a powerful shaping influence on me. And, and enough so that I I went and studied at Labrie when I was done with the university. And uh, through that, that, that really exposed me to the importance of uh, the breadth of the Christian worldview in all of life, that everything can be viewed. I've been thinking a lot about Francis Schaeffer. Of course, uh, Edith's passing just yeah. happened here very recently, yeah. and which caused us to think again and be grateful for the two of them and what they meant to so many people. Yeah, I had the opportunity after I studied at Labrie to come back and I organized a Labrie conference. I got to know Schaefer. Uh, then Labrie and Schaefer asked if I'd organize a series of seminars in the U.S. And so we did that. And uh, so I got a chance to travel with Schaefer and Edith and uh, a lot of the other Labrie folks. I mean, I'll just give you one illustration of an interaction I had with him at one point. Over lunch, I was having lunch with he and Edith and another young man that was on our staff team. And he said to us, he told a story about this guy. He was a very high up official within the... Uh, the army, you know, uh, system of um, providing spiritual mentoring, and you know, I forget the. But he he told the story. And he says that at some point he had to make the decision between success and Christ. You know, you're going to make the decision. He said to us. He turned to us and he said, "Young men, sometime you will make the decision between success and Christ. Do you want to be successful or do you want to follow Christ?" And you know, and you have a a prophet like that when he speaks. Man, I mean, God used that. I mean, th- those things he said to me, you know, 30 years ago, still echo in my heart to this day. We'll continue talking with Greg Pritchard today and learn his vision for the European Leadership Forum coming up. One story we've been tracking closely as a follow-up to an earlier first-person interview is the trek up Mount Everest by a group of women representing Operation Mobilization. The purpose of their climb back in April was to bring attention to the plight of sexually oppressed women and children around the world. And although the climb is over, the project is not and it will continue throughout the year. To read the reports about the Freedom Climb, just go to firstpersoninterview.com, click on the banner, The Freedom Climb. And congratulations to a brave group of women. My guest on First Person today, Greg Pritchard, and it's good to sit down in the studio with you today, Greg. Uh, you talk about the, the questions you were asking right from the beginning 
of your faith experience, and that that's true today. You you ask questions, don't you? You you look at things critically and ask why. And and uh, let's talk about what you do today. A little bit of a history to it. I I um I felt a need to kind of you know, asking questions to learn more. So I I did uh, a master's degree in the history of Christianity and history of Christian thought, and another coursework and exams for a second master's in theology and philosophy, and then I went on for my PhD. So you talk about asking questions. Mm-hmm. I really felt a need to really wrestle from a variety of different points of view, how to think from a Christian worldview across all of life and how to approach things. So the importance of the Lord using that and then the, and through the people that I've been mentored by, uh, seeing the value of that, people like Schaefer and others. Yeah. But then secondly, you know, that's been a large part of my calling is to serve leaders, to come alongside leaders and to try to help them do what God's called them to do. And sometimes that means helping them to wrestle through issues and questions they have. And sometimes it means to help to get perspective strategically. And that means you have to ask and answer questions as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably not limited to Europe, but I know a large part of your focus is on Europe. Why? Why Europe when there's so many other exciting places in the world where the gospel is making great advances? That's a really important question because you're absolutely right. Most people's focus right now is in the developing world. A place like Africa has grown by 5,000% over the last 100 years of the gospel. And the only continent that's gone the opposite way is Europe. So why Europe? And the the reason is that we don't realize it, but Europe really is still leading the world in, in many different areas. Number one, it's been the source of all the intellectual innovations in terms of academically over the last 500 years, whether it's the Renaissance, the Reformation, uh, the Enlightenment, uh, all the intellectual disciplines of the modern university, everything's come from Europe and it's percolated through the world. So we have a university like my Northwestern University where I received my PhD. I mean, it was really a, a European outpost. It's, it, you know, you don't find evangelicals there at the highest ranks doing their PhDs as a rule. And so the point is, it, what we have is Europe is dominating the world through education uh, through the history of ideas and through even the issue of unbelief. And so what, what you find is that Europe has been become the source of unbelief in the world. And so you think Europe is the only one that's going down. But in fact, unbelief is growing dramatically right across the world. And so the very problem Europe has gone through in the last 200 years, all the rest of the developing world is going to be faced in the next 50 to 100 years. And what we don't realize is we're not looking out ahead and developing antidotes hmm. And solutions for the problem of Europe. Otherwise, all these great, you know, victories we see right now around the developing world are all going to be swept away. So you see the the greatest threat being atheism, and not necessarily um, Islam or, or anything else. Well, if you look just in terms of your best strategist, someone like Peter Drucker would always say the most important question of leadership is to define reality. You can't talk about strategy until you first say where you are. So we say where we are with the gospel right now. We've got to look at that. What is our biggest competitor? And the fact of the matter is evangelicals have grown at twice the rate of Islam in the last hundred years, where Islam has grown at about 60 percent. The the evangelicals have grown by 120 percent. There's no world religion that's even close to what's happening there. But if you look at what's happened with unbelief, they're blowing past us. Hmm. They've actually just skyrocketing past. They've gone from, you know, 1 percent to 15 percent of the world's population in the last hundred years. I mean, and that thought uh, center is Europe. That thought center is Europe, all these ideas, and it flows through the educational system and through the media structures that we have in the modern world. So globalization is uh, going to be increasing this phenomenon, but also education more generally. So yeah, it, Europe is very strategic for the gospel. And, and the sad thing is we aren't 
realizing that. And so most of the strategists and most of the funders and most of the individuals who are interested in helping with the world's, you know, the expansion of the gospel, they're focusing on where the gospel's growing yeah. and they don't realize that a, that a tsunami is mm. going to carry it away. That's why I wanted to talk to you today because it is easy, it's an easy sell, so to speak, to get support for these uh, other places and, th- and they are important. We're not ignoring them at all yeah. and need to focus there. But at the same time, we can't turn our back and forget about Europe. Tell me what you're doing to address the problem. Uh, 11 or 12 years ago, we were asked by the leaders of kind of the major Christian groups in Europe just to help set up networks for developing leaders. And so these networks were designed to basically to identify, unite, and equip and resource the leaders in a particular area. It could be discipleship or Bible teaching or evangelism or the issue of apologetics. How do we persuasively communicate the gospel? So that started the European Leadership Forum. Right now there are 21, 22 networks that we've, uh, we're working with different kinds of leaders from leaders from 40 countries. We have an annual meeting uh, of about 700 people that come together once a year of hand-picked leaders. It's not a conference. It's each individual is individually invited to it. But then we have hundreds of initiatives, conferences, seminars that spin off out of this where individuals take the resources of the forum and use them back in their local communities. And we're seeing a, you know, really a renewal of biblical Christianity across Europe. We're seeing a, a brush fire of renewal. We're, we're really thrilled that the Lord's using this far beyond what we could have imagined. Give me a couple of case studies uh, quickly. What, what's, what's going on that we should know about, and uh, how can we pray about it? Well, I'll just give you one. I had a f- fellow in my house last week, uh, Yaroslav Lukasik. Uh, he was basically kicked out as a national security threat from Belarus. It's the last dictatorship, dictatorship right. yeah, yeah. in Europe right now. But he was considered a national security threat uh, in his country, so much so that they booted him out in 2007. And we we began working together in 2000. Nine And since then, he's become the leader for the Eastern European Leadership Forum. So the very thing we're doing in the European Leadership Forum, we're having English as the common language. He's using Russian. And he's already had uh, 10 networks that they have, and they doubled in size. And they're, they're basically doing the same thing we're seeing happen, expanding through Eastern Europe. It's the, all the one another's of Scripture Loving one another, serving one another, helping one another, encouraging one another. All the one another's happen, but the danger is with us as evangelicals is we're so focused on doing our own thing, building our own little silos of entrepreneurship. Now, the entrepreneurship is good, but the danger of that is we don't work together. Right, yeah, and we, we miss so many opportunities. Uh, I've also read where you talk about evangelism, and sometimes we think of evangelism in very narrow terms. Can you talk about that for a moment? Yeah, it, it, the typical way of understanding evangelism from our perspective is that we think of it as proclamation, and it is. You know, evangelism is communicating a message. It's, it's a word of truth, and we're supposed to preach it, we're supposed to teach it, we're supposed to explain it. But, but what we don't understand is there's a really rich history scripturally in the way that we communicate the truth. It's supposed to be proclamation, but it's also supposed to be persuasion. If you look at the Apostle Paul, just for example, and you look at the way that he communicated in Acts 17, it says in one passage, as his custom was, he went in the synagogue and showed them from the scriptures why Jesus was the Christ. What's he doing? Working with Jews and their reference point, the Old Testament, mm-hmm. he's explaining from their reference point why Jesus is the Christ. You know, using persuasively uh, their understanding to help them lead them to, to the Lord. And, and the second group he's working with in Acts 17 is he, he works and, and talks with the Greeks. And in that context, he quotes a Greek poet. He refers to the statue of the unknown God. He refers to the philosophical categories they use. 
And he doesn't refer in the same way to the, all the references from the Old Testament. In other words, he, he, it says he argues, proves, shows, explains. He's persuasively communicating the truth in that context. In other words, it's not just a rote message of proclamation. It's persuasively communicating that message in a way that makes sense to the audience you have. It doesn't, it doesn't compromise in any way the message, but sure. you have to persuasively communicate. And that's basically what apologetics is. It's, it's the you know, persuasive communication of the gospel and explaining why the gospel is true, the word of truth, as yeah. Paul said. And, of course, it bleeds over to making disciples, uh, coming full circle with you, right? Yeah. You, you needed to be disciples as a young person. And so we get, we get caught up in numbers and, and counting heads when actually it's outcome-based. and it's, it's, it's what's going on inside a person's heart and how deeply they're beginning to follow Christ. Yeah. It, the, the danger is, uh, again, this is something that comes from our, our mindset in the West is, you know, I— you know, Part of my history I didn't talk about was I, at one point when I finished my PhD, I was a CEO of an investment firm. Uh, not a typical career move for someone <laughs> who got a PhD no. in religion. <laughs> but when I did that, I, you know, I, I, you know, you, you, business is run on you know return on investment. It's return. You, you, you count numbers. You look to see what. And it's very clear to be able to count that, and so that and it needs to be. You know, but the danger is when we take just that business model over to ministry, we begin to think. Everything can be measured. Everything can be counted. But you can't measure, you, you know, your wife's love for you. Right. You can't measure the teachability of your child. You can't measure the tenderness in, as you put your child to bed. There's a lot of the most, you know, the most important things of life can't be measured. So the, the problem is that we've we focused on the management model and we've applied it to ministry. And people who fund things think that they need to have accounting mechanisms. We need to be good stewards, but not everything can be done in counting. And this is a good example is some people can say, I can, if I invest $1,000 in Africa and have this many converts, why should I invest money in, in Europe? And the problem is because there's a spiritual disease happening in Europe that's spreading around the world. And You've got to look down the road, don't you? We yeah. do. Yeah. We have to think strategically. And there has to be accountability along oh, the way, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. But there, there, there has to be this ability to think about, you know, what historically has happened. Why, for example, is John Wesley's revival that took over 100 years was incredibly powerful? Why did it disappear within 50 years? Mm. Because he was not focusing on the challenge from the Enlightenment and eventually was swept away. There you go, asking questions again. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> when is the next leadership form and how can we pray for it? Well, it'll be here in May and uh, we're going to be relocating it because it's grown to the point we can't have it where it was in Hungary. Uh, and it'll happen. Um, it happens every May, and you could pray for the right leaders to come, and pray for the Lord to move in a powerful way, and pray for us to to do all of this in the power of the Spirit, that it not be done in the flesh. I hope you will remember to pray for those who will be gathering the last week in May for the European Leadership Forum. The director, Dr. Greg Pritchard, has been our guest today, and it's been challenging to hear the strategic role Europe still has to play in evangelism around the world. If you'd like to listen again to today's program or if you'd like to recommend it to others, please visit firstpersoninterview.com and pass that link along. To hear today's conversation or any past guest, just click on the listen button at the top of the page, firstpersoninterview.com. There's also a link there to the webpage for the European Leadership Forum, which will give you much more information about the upcoming event in Poland. And then if you'd like to leave a comment about what you've heard today, please visit us at facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. If you click on the like button, you'll receive automatic updates via Facebook about each week's guest and topic. Look for us at facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Well, later this month, it will be time again for the Indy 500 race. And next week, we'll meet George Del Canto of Kingdom Racing, who's hoping to have two cars in the race. George will tell his own story of coming to faith in Christ. 
Now with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd. We'll see you next time for First Person. Mm-hmm.